the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, sentient sea monkeys found in the extrasolar underwater broccoli forest of Galisa 581C, and then lost because they're so tiny, bestest of the best, strangest of the strange, and an oil to fix squeaky egregiousness. Plus, we continue our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time on the podcast, we have a great discussion with the editor and a good many of the authors from this year's anthology, The Year's Best Military and Adventure SF 2015. Bain Consulting Editor David F. Sharirod co-hosts the interview with me. David is also the editor of this very fine collection of stories, which he gathers from near and far. The story authors we talk to are Brendan Dubois, Andrea M. Pauly, Seth Dixon, Claudine Griggs, Brian Dalton, and Hank Davis. We also want to remind you that until August, readers of the year's Best Military and Adventure SF 2015 can vote for the best story in the anthology, and the author of the winning story will receive $500 in a plaque at this year's DragonCon 2016. So reward the author of your favorite story in the book with some extra largesse and bling-bling. The voting is vetted, and we think very fair and just, and fun. Details on how to vote are in the book, they're in the front matter. Plus, we continue our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. That's all coming up. Here's the news. We have new eARCs available exclusively at the Bain eBooks retail site. Now, an eARC is both the mating call of the alligator snapping turtle as it approaches the upper ranges of its ecstatic underwater vocalization, and it is also the call of distress made by the male snapping turtle after the female of the species bites his tail off after the two turtle up. No, 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 that is totally bogus made-up stuff, we hope. No, an eARC is an electronic advanced reading copy. This is an ebook that we sell before the proofreading and print production, and it used to be called the galley proof back in the days, when alligator snapping turtles gazed up through the asteroid ash and proclaimed, We will survive this little setback. The main greatness of the eARC is that you get the work of your favorite author, or of a writer who might become your favorite author, months before it comes out. This is especially neato if you like a particular series, such as Out Now is Project Elf Home eARC by Wynn Spencer. This is a collection of three novellas all set in the Elf Home Tinker universe of the Elves, Pittsburgh, and the transformed area where the two meet called Elf Home. Wynn has once again produced a wonderful book, and this one's got some really great tales in it, some harrowing tales too. Also out now in eARC form is The Span of Empire by Eric Flint and David Carrico. This is a continuation of Eric's Zhao Empire series. 
This is science fiction detailing humanity's fight and alliance with the wily jowl and just plain fight with the vile Eckhart. These are loosely based on the history of the Seven Years' War, I think. Eric started the series with Katie Wentworth, who passed away a few years ago, and now he and David Carrico, author of 1635, The Devil's Opera, both of them co-authors, by the way, are continuing the Zhao Empire series with The Span of Empire. Project Elfholm and The Span of Empire eARCs are now available at BaneEbooks.com. want to welcome the editor and several authors from the year's best military and adventure SF 2015. This is a second edition of our, um, of our wonderful anthology of year's best short stories as, as gleaned from many, many venues, magazines, print, and, uh, online. Um, hi everyone. Hey, Tony. We have, uh, the editor is David Asherrod, who, um, you will anyone who's been listening to the podcast for long will recognize as the guy I always get to do the short story anthology podcasts because he has to read them anyway because of his uh, capacity as a, as editor of this thing. Uh, David F. Sharirad is the editor of the anthology series, the year's best military and adventure science fiction. You can also, like I said, hear him from time to time here at the Bain Free Radio Hour. His short stories have appeared in various places around the internet and in print, including in the upcoming Bane anthology, Things from Outer Space, edited by Hank Davis, who's also here with us, in which he appears sandwiched between H.P. Lovecraft and Robert Silverberg, uh, which means your story is under a lot of pressure, I guess, or or perhaps in the best of company, David. Yeah, yeah. So. Never did I think I would be uh, appearing between those two guys, so thank you to Hank for uh, inviting me to submit something and then for liking the story. Uh, and uh, thanks to you, Tony, for having us on today to talk about Year's Best Military and Adventure SF. Sure. I would like to add, of course, that you're my former student from University of Texas at Dallas. <laughs> yes, we've mentioned this a few times. <laughs> I am a Tony Daniel protege. That's right. And uh, both undergrad and graduate. And then we kicked him over to... Uh, to get his MFA at uh, NC State. So yeah. he's well credentialed and has the best of mentors, David does. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, all right, David, uh, well, tell us a little bit about um, the general theme of the anthology and how what your methodology is. Okay, sure. So you said this. This is the second year we've done this. Uh, the first one had a slightly different title, which was Year's Best Military science fiction and space opera. Um, but when I was talking with Bainet, uh, excuse me, Bain publisher, Tony Weiskopf, you know, I said, do we want to, how strict do we want to be with those definitions? And she said, we'd rather have great stories that, you know, um, fit the feel rather than being really strictly hewing to, to the space opera or military, uh, definition. And uh, so we kind of stretched it a little bit. And so for this year, we decided let's go ahead and change the title to Military and Adventure SF, and that'll let us do a little bit more, uh, be a little bit more accurate with what we're doing. And uh, the thing about these is, of course, there's quite a few, some, you know, something like 19 years best uh, anthologies, and they all sort of have their own slants to some degree. 
but we wanted to do one that was the kind of, uh, well, what it says, military and adventure, that would focus in on these sort of very edge-of-your-seat, um, plot-driven is a dirty word, I know, in some circles, but plot-driven. Uh, story-rich, I believe. That, yeah. <laughs> story-rich, that's, that's, is that the way we like to put it? Yeah, story-rich, edge-of-your-seat, exciting stories that, that explored these sort of themes of uh, adventure and space travel and exploration and that sort of thing. So that's the idea behind it. And uh, how, do I, how do I go about this? I read a lot of stories. Um, I try to get my hands on everything I can. Um, you know, so I, I'll read the big online magazines, uh, Clark's World and Lightspeed and uh, Mike Resnick's Galaxy's Edge. And uh, then, of course, the print, the, the the big three print F and SF uh, fantasy and science fiction and um, analog and Asimov's and then there are other things like uh, Interzone and oh just you know so many uh, venues out there and of course then there's a lot of original anthologies that that are happening now uh, many of them through Kickstarter like um, there's not a story in here from it but I really enjoyed it with Alex Schwartzman's uh, Unidentified Funny Objects, I think they're going to do the fifth one this year. And uh, Bain, of course, puts out uh, some original anthologies, such as Onward Drake, which has, we've got two stories from that one. Uh, and then you've got other, other people do this, things like Kickstarter. Um, I guess I mentioned that already. And then, of course, Thor and other publishers do put out anthologies, and I try to get my hands on those and, and read through them. And the, and the nice thing about having this be themed is that I don't have to read everything, you know. I can uh, peruse a story and see, you know, if it's fantasy, I might read it for my own enjoyment later, but I don't have to worry about it for this book. If it's um, not something that would be military or adventure SF, I can, you know, read a few pages and realize this isn't the kind of thing we're looking for, and I can put it aside. And again, and I do this often, come back to read it for fun, but not for, um, not for this book well tell us um david about the uh about the twist on this book we do something that a lot of the years best don't do um which is our voting system yeah so this was something that maybe you came up with i don't remember who it was but um we thought why not uh tie this into um because bain has a, a great history and one thing i love about bain of involving their readers uh, in in the, I don't want to say in the production process, but involving the readers with the publishing house. And we thought this would be a neat way to do that, and that is we have the Year's Best Military and Adventure Science Fiction Reader's Choice Award. So you may be familiar with the AnLab uh, Reader's Poll or the Asimov's Reader's Poll. This is like that for our anthology. So we've got an award, which we uh, handed out last year, and we'll do it again this year and presumably on into the future. And it's a, it's a plaque, a handsome plaque, and then an even handsomer stack of $100 bills, $500 to the winner. And readers get to vote. So the table of contents from the book is the ballot. And uh, you can log on to, I'll say this slowly, www.bain.com slash year's best award 2015. And there will be a little checkmark box thing for each of the stories and you can vote on your favorite and uh, you've got until the end of August to do that 
and then we will tally up the votes, and we will hand out the award uh, at DragonCon uh, over Labor Day in Atlanta. And as I said, it's a plaque and $500. And so this is just a fun way to, you know, reward writers. We like to put money and uh, accolades into writers' fans and also to involve the readers and make them feel like they get a say, because they do. They get a say in what is the year's best. Yeah. So one of these writers uh, might very well be $500 richer in August. Yeah, well, 1st of September, yeah. 1st of September. And, uh, you have to wait on the boat till then, Brendan. <laughs> or whomever. <laughs> so. Yeah, last year was the first year we did the anthology and the first year we did the uh, award. And uh, Michael Z. Williamson won uh, for a story, Soft Casualty, which is set in his Freehold uh, universe. Yeah, that was a great story. Good turnout. Yeah, and it was a great turnout. We got, we got. Uh, I don't know, I don't have, have the numbers, but it was. we were pleased with the how many people got on board and voted. And we'd like to obviously continue that yeah. because... Uh, the it was people that vote, the, the hundreds and hundreds. They, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was. It was not in the uh, double digits. It was. It was much higher than that. So, yeah. So, David, go ahead and uh, let's uh, let's talk about the anthology. Um, however, you would like to proceed. We're going to go in alphabetical order because that is the order they were in in the back of the book. So. Uh, we have got Hank Davis here today. As we mentioned, he is senior editor at Bang Books. He is also a writer, obviously. His stories have appeared in Analog, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and the Orbit Anthology series, among other places. As an editor, he has edited several popular anthologies, uh, which we have talked about many of them here on the podcast, things like the Bane Big Book of Monsters, A Cosmic Christmas, and its sequel, A Cosmic Christmas to You, In Space No One Can Hear You Scream, Future Wars, and Other Punchlines, and Worst Contact. Uh, his story here, um, here today in the book is The Trouble with Telepaths that originally appeared in Onward Drake. Well, we actually talked, I think, about that story back when that book came out, but we wanted to talk to him again, and he agreed so hank thanks for being on again today oh well it's a pleasure i i well, we hope I, so. I feel i feel the other participants outright me but uh proceed well you like me had the benefit of uh alphabetically coming first so uh -huh. don't don't underestimate that all right uh so we also have Seth dickinson here he is the author of the epic fantasy the traitor baru cormorant and 16 short stories. Uh, he wrote much of the Lord for the Bungie, for Bungie Studios Destiny. He teaches at the Alpha Workshop for Young Writers. This is his second appearance in our Year's Best anthology. Uh, he was in the first volume with a story called Morrigan in the Sun Glare, uh, which is related, unsurprisingly, to his story in this volume. That one is called Morrigan in Shadow. Seth, so glad you could be with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. We also have Brian Dalton uh, with us today. He uh, has ridden a camel in the Sahara, played volleyball on a sandbar in the Pacific Ocean, stayed in a Zen Buddhist monastery on a sacred mountain in Japan. Um, his story in here was, uh, it's a far future mystery, I think that's a fair way to describe it, that appeared in um, fantasy and science fiction. Uh, we are happy to have him. Brian, thank you. You're welcome. 
I should be identifiable on this as the only British voice, as far as I know, on the uh, podcast. Yeah, you will you will stand out. Yes. Uh, we also have Brendan Du Bois here with us on the line. He is the award-winning author of 19 novels and more than 150 short stories. His stories have twice won him the Seamus Award for the Private Eye Writers of America and have also earned him three Edgar Award nominations. Uh, he is a former Jeopardy! champion, and he recently appeared on and won the game show The Chase. Uh, his first science fiction novel, Dark Victory, was published back in January from Bain, and he is working on a sequel, or maybe the sequel is done, and Tony is working on editing it. I'm not sure. Uh, either way, his story, <laughs> my book, The Siege of Denver, is set in that same uh, world, and he kicks off the anthology. He's the first story in there after my little preface and David Weber's introduction. Uh, Brendan, thanks for uh, thanks for being on. Well, David and Tony, thanks for letting me come play in the science fiction universe after so many years in the mystery and thriller field. It's great to be here. All right. We also have uh, Claudine Griggs. She is the Writing Center Director at Rhode Island College, and her publications include three nonfiction books about transsexuals, along with a couple dozen articles on writing, teaching, and other topics. She uh, also just recently began writing fiction, and she's published three stories, uh, one of which appears in the book, of course, and uh, she hopes to write more science fiction, which was her first love genre as a teenager. Uh, she is... Um, she earned her B.A. and M.A. in English at California State Polytechnic University in Pomona, and she is also a Vietnam-era veteran, I believe, of the Air Force. Um, Claudine, thank you so much for uh, calling in today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and say hello from Rhode Island. <laughs> You're just down the road from Brendan, right? He's in New Hampshire, so we've got a lot of you guys are on the East Coast. I'm the, I may be the lone in here. Um, anyway, uh, finally we have uh, Andrea M. Pauly. Uh, she writes uh, short stories, blogs for weightless books, and writes occasional book reviews for the Washington Independent Review of Books. Uh, her story, For the Love of Sylvia City, which is in years best, was inspired by the work of oceanographer Dr. Sylvia Earle and a government publication with one of her favorite titles of all time. That title is The Shallow Water Benthic Habitats of the Main Hawaiian Islands, 2007. Uh, I guess she'll tell more about us, uh, tell us more about that today. Uh, Andrea, thank you so much for being on. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited sure. to be here. Excellent. Um, well, let's, uh, so we did that alphabetically. Um, and since we aren't in the room to draw straws and see which one of you gets the short straw to go first, um, I'm going to just go kind of through the table of contents in order, which means, Brendan, you are up first. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple things. One is sure. uh, that, as we mentioned, you have got quite the list of credentials in the mystery writers field, writing field. Um, uh, now, damn it, now the day of your uh, – hang on, let me see if I can remember it. Dead Sand was your first book, and the detective's name that I can't think of. It's Lewis Cole, Lewis just Cole Detective Series. Yep, Lewis Cole, there we go. You know, I should have written that. I had that so queued up. I've, anyways, I read that earlier this year, really enjoyed it. So you've been writing Thank mysteries you. for quite a while, and uh, as we mentioned, won the uh, Seamus Award, been nominated for Edgar's. Uh, but 
you're just now kind of starting to get into the science fiction field. Um, you've had stories in Analog recently, I know, and of course, uh, these two novels from Bain in this story. Um, so what's it like making that switch, although you're still writing mysteries, we should say, but uh, what's it like making that switch, jumping from the mystery genre over to science fiction? Actually, it's a lot of fun. Um, my first love was science fiction and fantasy. I'm a child of the 60s and early 70s, back during the space race, and I read all the old greats, you know, Asimov, Bradbury, Andrew Norton, the whole Heinlein, the whole Schlemiel. And I really wanted to break into science fiction, but my first short stories are always rejected by the science fiction magazines. And almost by happenstance, I sold one to Ellery Queen's Mr. Magazine, and that sort of set my path for the next 20 or so years. But I always had a fondness for science fiction. And I was just thrilled when Bain picked up a science fiction novel I just wrote just for the fun of it, just for the pure fun of it. And it's great being reacquainted. So I have to say, with all due respect, the genre of mystery and thrillers where people are killing each other and slitting throats actually are very pleasant people to meet with. And, and it's, it's, you know, everybody seems to get along. And now I'm finding that the science fiction and fantasy field, which should be sort of a forward-looking, we're all in this together as humanity field, Boy, there's, there's turf battles and tongue wars going back decades I'm just getting familiar with. But I guess that helps me with, if I'm deciding to write military science fiction. Right, there's maybe some ready-made conflict there for you. Um, well, so Absolutely. You, you, are write, yeah, you are writing some uh, military science fiction. This story um, is certainly that, and it is set in the world of uh, Dark Victory and, the, again, the sequel. Um, there's a great little twist at the end here that I, I hesitate, I don't want to give away, but a um, little surprise. But uh, why don't you tell us, if you can, a little bit about this, the world that uh, Siege of Denver is set in, and uh, also then, of course, the Dark Victory and, and its sequel is set in as well. Sure. I decided to have fun writing an alien invasion novel, which, is, of course, is one of the classic plots of science fiction. But I decided to play a little bit different. A lot of those novels and short stories that deal with alien invasion. The alien invasion happens on page one, paragraph one, or sentence one. And I took it a little differently. I placed it 10 years after they came and started raising a ruckus, figuring we'll just jump right into a world, an Earth, which is actually concurrent to today. I have the aliens coming within the next decade or so. So everything's familiar. But the way the aliens attacked pretty much disabled our 21st century technology. So you're having basically interstellar war on Earth being fought with 19th century technology. There's steamships, telegraphs, uh, coal-powered locomotives. And so it really gets down to the nitty-gritty as how far will humanity go to fight the invader. And the twist is, let's just say the, the women and men who are fighting the war are not quite what you would expect them to be. How's that for being a little bit yeah, um, I think that's, mysterious. Yes, mysterious and enticing without giving away too much. Yeah, and in this story, as you said, so uh, we're using older technology, and this it is, um, the city of Denver is uh, besieged by these aliens. Besieged and by our, the aliens, right. Yeah, and our intrepid heroes are, um, well, they're not, but we're trying to get supplies to them via hot air balloon, correct? And exactly. uh, 19th century technology. Right, and so they are um, making an effort to make sure that happens, and uh, it gets kind of hairy for a while there, and uh, you will have to read it to see if they are successful or not, everybody. 
The thing uh, that uh, the thing that I love about Brendan's world with Dark Victory and with this story is that he doesn't. The aliens, we don't know what the hell they're doing or why they are. He probably knows himself, but it's it's the way I imagine a, a real invasion might go. You know, it's like it's it's almost incomprehensible some of the moves they make. Exactly, and as as my characters say to one another, what do you expect? They're aliens. We don't know what is driving them, and that's the mystery in both books and the short story is. Why are they here and why are they doing what they're doing? And at some point, Tony and Tony will probably put a knife to my throat and tell me to reveal all, but hopefully that might be a book or two down the road. We'll see. <laughs> we know a little bit at least now. Yes, we do. Yeah. So um, I'll just let you guys plug in. When is the sequel coming out? Do we know? Or is it uh, still in the works? Uh, it's... Tony D right now. Yeah, it's on my desk. Uh, it's spring, but the um, the mass market of Dark Victory will be out in August. The first novel in the series. Yeah, the, the Siege of Denver. Uh, pick up the mass market or the trade paperback of the of the book. So, all right. Well, um, let me just move down the table of contents then, because we got we were lucky enough to have so many people on, but that means we got to go kind of fast, unfortunately. Um, uh, to Andrea's story, for the love of Sylvia City. Uh, this is one that takes place um, underwater, and Tony and I were discussing what are we going to talk about uh, before earlier today, and we were thinking that you know you saw a lot of these. Um, I was mentioning childhoods in they have underwater cities. This was a uh, Tony. What was the show you mentioned? I mentioned Sea Lab Twenty Twenty from the the cartoons. That was that's my touchstone for an underwater. So there seemed like there was a lot of them, and yeah, it was like a seventies much anymore motif. Yeah, yeah. So I no. guess uh, you mentioned no. you were in, inspired by um, a certain uh, work, and I just wanted wondered. Uh, it was great to see a, so an underwater story in 2015. You don't see those much, is what I'm getting at. So maybe you could just <laughs> tell us about where you got that idea from, and and how the story came about a little bit. So. Yeah, sure. Um, I have a I have a tendency to be interested in how big structures work, like big infrastructure. I don't know why. Like I do, I work for the government, and it's really weird. Like all my stories seem to be about like how does this system work? Anyway, every day at work, would walk past this report with this beautiful shining cover. Like, well, you know, some paper, or whatever, because it's the government. We can't get anything published in hardback, but it was this beautiful, like, someone had put a lot of effort into this, and it was the shallow water benthic habitat to the main Hawaiian, Hawaiian island, and I'm like, that is so specific. Like, <laughs> years have gone into this, right? And, and so, anyway, um, and, I, and that's something that I love, is, like, when you do research, I'm not a scientist, but scientists, they have to be so specific, and they're all really, in reality, working together, even though it might not be true, like, on the surface. They're working together to advance scientific knowledge, and they're all mostly doing these tiny little things. And um, at the same time, you know, for a year walking past this report that I saw many times every day and I was totally fascinated by without cracking it open early on, I also somewhere, like, realized the bottom of the ocean is, is like, it has tables on it, not just the 
they connect the internet now. Like that's how the internet works by these giant, not large anymore, but these cables that connect us with. In the United States, we're connected to Europe and South America, and suddenly, like a Caribbean country, gets a cable, and suddenly they have fantastic internet service. And that whole system is based on telegraph cables, the first ones that were were laid in the 1850s. And so, anyway, one thing led to another. And and I wanted to write, like, an underwater story, and I had put it in Sylvia City, uh, the title, but that just didn't quite seem where the story was. And when something is underwater, um, especially if it's in, like, a transitional area, like on the continental shelf, you have this kind of constant change. And I wanted a character that was also having, in some kind of, like, an indeterminate state of change. And in the story, my main character is the last refugee from the land going um, down to Sylvia City with her parents at some point. And she's since grown up. And one day, she doesn't feel like she belongs anywhere. She definitely doesn't belong on the land. And there's this haven on the bottom of the ocean. And she's doing her basically service, not quite military service, maintaining undersea cables kind of on the continental shelf and she has some physical aspects that make her best suited to to work on the continental shelf as opposed to people who might have grown up in Sylvia City. And one day she has to make a decision about which which world she's going to be part of, the underwater world or the one above. And so anyway, seriously, telegraph cables on the bottom of the ocean being laid in the 1850s. Seriously. It's amazing. So we're kind of kind of like Brendan. Yeah, sure, kind of like Brendan's story. We are uh, talking about old technology, although this is a very different story than his. But um, yeah, so and the cables play an important role. Maybe that doesn't come in till she's she's maintaining them, and then um, something happens, and they play something changes. Maybe I shouldn't say. Um, yeah, and it's a but, modern story. I mean, it's not set in the 1850s, right, but right. it's yeah, still this oldest. And what's going to happen with all this infrastructure as time goes on? Like, we have all these things buried in the ground underneath us. You know, I live in Washington, D.C. We have metro tunnels everywhere. What happens to those in the future? Are they really going to take them down when, we have, when we're all in hovercraft? I don't know. What's going to happen? Kind of cool. It's, uh, yeah. I agree. Well, what the um, so your main character is needs breathing apparatus, but the, most of the people that live in Sylvia City, they're they're um, sea adapted, right? That's right. So I had to um, think about uh, what I would, what kind of breathing apparatus uh, the main character would have, and um, among other things, and I tried to design things that could. Be realistic about a breathing apparatus that is somewhat alive still, or in another case, um, an, an underwater vessel. It's like a personal underwater vessel that's also alive to a certain extent. So the particular breathing apparatus has layers on it that uh, peel off. They kind of grow and peel off, and they're on her underwater. You know, the suit that she her, the suit that she lives in, and they it's kind of like a they're not quite in symbiosis with her, but it's a living thing and it, it protects her away from pressure contortions um, underwater and anyway and what's the what is the conflict that's going on on the land and why is Sylvia City a refuge the conflict is um, there was a there was a war and it, I, I called it a carbon war and it's a war that targets 
carbon-based life forms. And um, as a result of the war that had previously happened, you know, 20 years before or something like that, there was a lot of um, pollution in the air because it's uh, burning, basically burning carbon as gigantic weapons that have killed a lot of people and have also um, changed the environment of the earth to a certain extent. And, you know, all this stuff we know about, like, what happened the potential for the ocean to be like a carbon sink and how car uh, carbonic acid, carbonic acid may not be the right one, but uh, the fallout, the carbon fallout going into the ocean um, has affected, you know, the ocean, the earth, the land, and people are still trying to survive on the land. And on the day that the main character has to make a decision, the carbon war has flared up again. And this is very bad because the only refuge is, uh, on the bottom of the ocean. Wow. This strikes me as a, um, it's a really rich world and it kind of strikes me that you might have a novel here. Are you working on one based on this story? That is a terrifying idea, but <laughs> yeah. it has crossed my mind. It has crossed my mind, you know? But just leave it at that, baby. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's one thing I love about science fiction. And I'm looking ahead at the folks we're going to talk to and the other folks who um, we would have loved to have on, but we, like I said, we only have so much time. Um, is So your story is like 14 pages in, in this book. And all of that gets, you get all of this that you're saying layered in there. Brendan's story, you know, you, you get all this background in, in this very rich world and, and sets and everybody's coming up that we'll talk about. Um, I, it's just a comment. I guess I don't have anything to say more than that. It's, it's one of the things that draws me to science fiction is um, all this neat background stuff that sort of just barely shows in the stories, but you know that it's there. So. Yeah. I, I thought I taught you that word, David. You know, I always said, <laughs> Letting the part represent the whole. It's the secret to... weapon of short stories. Yeah. Well, yes. Um, and especially science fiction short stories. Absolutely. Um, well, uh, let's let's keep on trucking uh, here. So um, the next story that we have uh, that we have the contributor on is Claudine Griggs's A Helping Hand, and um, this one this one's short, but I really wanted to have you on, Claudine, because I liked it so much. Um, it was also one of Tony Weisskopf's favorites. Yeah, that was she really liked that. It was in, that was a she gave that a big thumbs up. So um, we wanted to have you on, even though it's going to be hard to talk about without just saying what it's about. But um, this one appeared in Lightspeed, and I think in Lightspeed's one of their special issues. But it felt like it could have been, and I mean this as a high high praise, not big on Lightspeed, which I enjoy as well. But it felt like it could have been an analog story in a way. It's very um, hard science, uh, character solving a problem uh, in a no-nonsense sort of way. Uh, so that's what I liked about it, uh, personally. So, I don't know, Tony, did you have any questions? Well, could she set up, just set up the, the problem, and then we'll let the readers speculate, the listeners speculate on how Claudine solves it. If you would, Claudine. Yeah, yes. Um, I... I like strong women, and when I thought of this story, I just said, I want to write about a woman 
who's in a situation and she knows she's going to die. And in the first draft, as I was working on it, I thought she would die. Um, so I set up the situation where she's in space and sort of trapped, floating between um, her shuttle and a satellite, uh, and she just accepts that cold reality. Um, but she really was a strong woman. I often think, well, what, you know, she's the kind of woman I want to be. Um, and um, she starts thinking, and she fought her way out of it um, in, a, in a way that um, surprised me. But it was really going to be about the character um, and the situation, and I did want it to make it as hard as possible, as I'm capable of, even as an English major. I try to study astronomy, and I did go to the launch pad workshop in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought I had some good ideas about what space might be like. I also think in the future space travel is just going to be routine, um, and we will be working there, living there, um, and just like um, problems that happen on Earth uh, in our work environment or our recreational environments, they will happen in space. Uh, so I set up the problem, and um, Alexandria surprised me, um, and I really admired her for that. Um, but I think I also disclose in the um, story something about um, her understanding of what death was and that she really did not want to die and that she worried about it even though she certainly is that strong woman. Um, So that was where, and and I like concise, um, brief writing. I also started into the story with that in mind. I wanted it to be um, very concise. I mean, I like uh, brief writing almost as much as a double cheeseburger. So I wanted the story to be um, short, and um, I, it's nice that you said it could have been, uh, could have appeared in analog. I hadn't sent it to analog, but it had been rejected twice uh, before um, it was drafted, although I came up with that title toward the end. My working title was Stranded, and then I changed it to Newton's Law, uh, and then finally, I think in the ninth draft, I came up with the title Helping Hand, um, and I was very very pleased, obviously, when Lightspeed accepted it. I thought it was a good story, and I'm glad. I'm it was. Um, she's in a terrifying position, which just thinking of it's, it's kind of like the space version of being buried alive. You're you're spinning around, and there are you're you're not far from safe haven that you, but you just can't grab anything, right? Right. Um. Yeah, and that's why I thought. I said, oh, well, this will be a story about a woman who dies in space. Um, so I, um, uh, again, in the process of drafting, I've often discovered that my characters find solutions that I hadn't imagined when I started writing it, or the solution I thought was going to happen doesn't turn out quite that way. So um, it was it was a very, it was a fun story, um, and I, I wish I could be like that, and I wish I could be an astronaut and do all those sorts of things and never never lose my cool, even when uh, facing, uh, as she believes, certain death in the beginning. But unfortunately, um, I'm not as adventurous as that, at least not in my office here at Rhode Island College. Yeah, the first line is, Alexandria Stevens knew she was going to die a slow, cold death in space, which is quite a hook. I mean, 
and that drew me in. And then, um, yeah, it remind, I mean, I know uh, I mentioned him before on here, but Joe Hill, the Stephen King's son, and the novelist in his own right, his first novel was like this. He thought he was going to write a short story about a guy who got, who bought a ghost on eBay, <laughs> you know, haunted something on eBay, and the ghost was going to kill him. And then he gets a novel out of it because the main characters wouldn't die. And so, yeah, this is a similar thing of the character taking you um place you didn't expect. So that's very interesting to hear that that's how that came about. So uh, She was tougher well, than I expected, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was rooting for her, so I'm glad she made it. And, of course, it, you know, it, um Movies like Gravity come to mind. Um, well, it's uh, I mean, it it has echoes. I don't know if it's intentional of um, of the cold equations that famous story. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By uh, Hank. Uh, what the heck is the author's name? Tom Good. Tom Godwin. 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 I I just wanted to. Uh, interject. This is Andrea. I really sure. enjoyed the the humor in Claudine's story too. Like the the kind of spunky humor was was just kind of fantastic. Like the accepting and it, it was wonderful. It was a great read. Thank you. Uh, right, and like I said, unfortunately, we got to keep moving on. Uh, I'm gonna have to be the taskmaster here, but. Um, Let's move down now to um, another great read. Of course, I think they're all great reads. Otherwise, they probably would not be in here. Uh, and that is Morgan in Shadow by Mr. Seth Dickinson. As I mentioned, uh, uh, I guess a prequel. Like, uh, Yeah, it's a prequel. It takes place before uh, called Morgan in the Sun Glare uh, was in last year's book. And when I saw this, is, they were both in Clark's World originally. When I saw Morgan in Shadow pop up, I thought, ooh. So um, uh, here we are. And so this is the same characters. If you read the first anthology or if you read it on Clark's World from Morgan in The Sungler, we are back now with Morgan in Shadow. And uh, when I was writing, you know, I get to one of the fun things you get to do is write those little intro blurbs. And when I was writing this, we talk about synecdoche and packing a lot in. I was like, how the heck am I going to put all this in a little one paragraph blurb? I think I did a great job. But, um, yeah, yeah. Geez, where do we start, Seth? Uh, so uh, maybe you give us the setup as best as you can, uh, realizing we only have like an hour tops for this whole thing. So, you know. <laughs> uh, it's a very dense story with a really weird structure, but it's pretty simple at the core. Uh, it's, it's about a woman, a soldier, who's torn between what she has to do to complete her mission and... Uh, her kind of human obligation to her lover. And uh, it's about how far you're willing to go to win. Um, and the sort of conflict between the ends justify the means and... Right. And that grows into this sort of huge cosmological science fiction idea. Uh, but that's the kernel of it all, the, the emotional engine. Yeah, There's a lot I, I just wanted to say there's a lot of uh, a lot of interesting trivia behind this story, but uh, we we can get to that. Yeah, for sure. We can. Uh, well, give us some while, while you while we're here. So. <laughs> well, I'm using you. Um, 
is actually based on a game mod that uh, myself and, and some colleagues, people I know through the internet, made for this ancient, ancient game called Free Space 2 um, from 1999. I'm sorry, that's ancient in my life. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we got the source code to it, and we were able to sort of create our own um, our own stories in the game. And you can actually play through all the events of Morrigan in the Sun Glare and most of Morrigan in Shadow uh, online. Like, or, or you can see other people playing them if you don't want to actually buy the game. Uh, you can, you can, you know, look it up on YouTube. It's called Blue Planet. And uh, Morrigan in the sh uh, Morrigan in Shadow actually uh, kind of leaps over the the game's progress. So for the fans, the people who've been sticking with us for all these years, trying to figure out what would happen next. Um, it was kind of a cool chance to see how the story might go. Yeah, wow, that's fascinating. So um, I was going to ask you if there was like a novel in this, but it sounds like there already is it. Maybe there is still, but, but there's already a bigger structure that this fits into. Um, well, you talked about how um, it, that it, it's a strangely structured story. It, it, it does have, um, you're addressing the reader in some portions of the story. You're saying, I'm telling a story. Why did you choose to tell the story that way? What was the, uh, I mean, maybe you don't know. Maybe it just came to you, Seth. Yeah, um, I tried to make the story linear in its emotional logic. Um, but, it, you know, it's all mixed up chronologically. Uh, and I was really worried that would get too confusing to follow. Um, so I tried to, uh, I was thinking about the way that a lot of, um, a lot of news sites now will actually give you a little progress bar as you scroll through, uh, the article. And I think this probably compels readers to read a little more because there's a sense of satisfaction and, and, uh, you know, you fill up the bar. It's like progress. Um, it's a reward. Uh, so I tried using the, the headings of the different threads to, clue readers in as to where they were in the story and how much progress they'd made on that thread. And then towards the end, I was able to use those headings um, in a metafictional way, uh, to sort of start messing with the structure of the story to reflect the, the mind fuckery going on within it. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Sure. What is the, go ahead, David, if you want to no, you go. follow up. Well, what is the, um, so, the setup is that we have human humans fighting humans, but there's a, a lurking menace. What what is the situation in this, as the story begins, as far as the uh, strategic, you know, where are we with humans in space? Yeah, um, it's a conflict between two two good guys, two rival democracies with different conceptions of what's necessary for human survival. Um, so there's the Federation, which lives around Earth, and uh, it's sort of utopian. They've really worked on uh, conditioning their citizens to be better people, building a state where people can, can be everything that uh, they have the potential to be. Uh, but the problem is they've been isolated um, for a long time. There was a cataclysm that sort of broke the, the wormhole that connected Earth to the rest of their colonies. And the colonists, the Alliance, have been stuck out there trying to hold off these really, really um, 
very alien aliens. Uh, they're not even sentient, right? They're yes, they're that's the, kind of their strength. Yeah, they were um, sort of an attempt to figure out how you would fight uh, against enemies much much smarter than human beings. Uh, and to me, the answer was if you can't outsmart them, you have to devalue um, sort of awareness and intelligence as useful traits in winning the war. Uh, so the, the colonist alliance has been facing these guys, and eventually what they do is they rebuild the wormhole back to Earth, and they say, hey, can you guys help us out? Um, and they, they want to mobilize Earth into a war economy uh, because, you know, they need to survive, and Earth has a ton of resources. Um, I know anyone listening will probably wonder why would anyone with access to that much, uh, you know, real estate out there need resources from Earth. And it has to do with how industrialized uh, Earth is and, and where the population is distributed. The problem is, of course, that uh, the people, the Federation, uh, aren't willing to to try to wreck their civilization to go to a war footing. They think there has to be another solution. So the colonists end up saying, um, if you're not willing to help us fight these aliens, uh, we're going to have to incorporate you by force. And that's where the conflict comes from. And when this story starts, the Federation is basically lost. And part of the reason it's lost is that its citizens are psychologically unprepared to commit acts of mass violence, um, which is a great thing, I think, but unfortunately made it tough for them to fight the war. Right. It's it's not maybe a, it's a great thing in maybe not in this circumstance. And um, yeah, um, that was one of the things that was fascinating to me is you got a very alien alien, which I always like. I mean, I like guys in rubber suits too, but a very alien alien, um, and then two factions of humans that, and all three think so differently from each other. And you know, um, that was one of the really interesting things to me about it. It also, I mean, it follows, it's the kind of, um, it has the kind of theme that David Drake, uh, explores a lot, which is that, um, the warrior has to become something that is somewhat monstrous to his or her own culture in order to be effective. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. And they've institutionalized this, um, in the, uh, in the story with this group they call Nagari, which is, uh, sort of where they stick everyone who's um, not psychologically suited to uh, live in utopia. Um, and these people are basically sort of weaponized monsters who uh, serve as a, a sort of method of last resort for protecting the Federation. But she's very, she's a very sympathetic weaponized monster. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I'm glad. Did you have any... There was a lot of uh, I, I had the feeling of uh, of a great Greg Bear novella called Hard Fought. Have you did that have any influence here? Yes, Tony, I knew you. I, I thought of that, and I thought of you. <laughs> and I read it. So. Huh. I I've read and loved Greg Bear. I haven't read that one. Yeah. What? <laughs> check, it, check it out, Hard Fought. It is Tony. We talked about Tony was my old teacher. That was one he assigned in. And I think, it, and hope you take this as a compliment. I don't mean it to be anything but. But Harfot in this both um, 
they're incredibly rewarding, but you're going to have to put some effort in, you know. And that's what I tell people when people talk about, ask me, friends who I have who aren't readers necessarily, but they're being nice and they bought the book I edited. I say, like, you know, read them all. I say, Morgan and Shadow, you know, you might have to put a little effort, but do it. Do it. You're going to be glad you made it through. So, um, yeah. Well, we could talk about this on and on and on. Let me ask you one last thing: Is there going to be? Are you going to do a novel? Are you going to write more stories in this, or is this? Are we done with uh, Morgan and and crew? <laughs> so my my hope is that we'll be able to wrap up the uh, <laughs> the game series eventually, but it takes so much work. Uh, I'm not sure when we'll be able to get to it. Uh, so I might end up doing more short stories in the world. The problem is that. Um, the game actually has a more complex setting with a couple extra alien species with their own sort of cognitive architectures. Um, and I chopped them out of the Morrigan stories for simplicity. Uh, and to continue the story past where we are, I feel like I'd have to bring them back in. Um, so I feel like, uh, you know, Morrigan's character arc, Naomi Laporte in the story is at a pretty good place. She got her happy ending. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm also on contract with, uh, with Tor to write some novels for them. And one thing I have thought about a lot and worried about a lot is that for me, uh, Morgan and Shadow was a really self-indulgent story. It was, uh, I really liked just sitting down and writing all this crazy stuff about uh, radically alien aliens and space fighters dogfighting. Um, and I do worry that when I let myself go like that, I end up producing uh, work that takes, we'll put it kindly and say it takes a lot of effort to get something out of so I've been thinking a lot about how to streamline. Uh, okay. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll keep an eye out. Yeah. Um, all right. Like I say, i got to catch you off. I, I want to say thanks to Hank and Brian for hanging in there. We will get to you guys. Uh, we'll get to Hank now and then Brian. I appreciate you so much. Uh, uh, we were, we were going to end with a bang uh, with you. But first, let's go to Hank Davis. Hank, we, uh, we talked about this story once. It is on in Onward Drake, which was uh, Mark Van Name edited a book uh, in honor of uh, David Drake, who listeners will, I'm sure, be familiar with. Um, and this is a story you have known, uh, Dave Drake, who, by the way, is also in the anthology we'll talk about. Me and Tony may talk about his story here in a minute. But um, you've known him for years, and you said when we talked last time that you kind of crafted this story, you guys are good friends, by kind of thinking to yourself, what what do me and uh, David Drake both like as far as science fiction and that uh, goes? So um, maybe just talk about some of the elements that you brought into your story. It's called The Trouble with Telepaths. Yeah. The, uh, since it was going to be uh, in honor of David Drake, I figured it, it had to involve military personnel. And fortunately, or unfortunately, since I was... The 101st Airborne in Vietnam uh, never jumped out of a plate, fortunately. Uh, uh, I, I just had to draw memories, uh, bad as it were. Uh, this is, uh, although actually I didn't have any combat in it, it's, it seems to be sort of a peacetime army, or at least stateside soldiers, uh, who are in the future, but it's uh, the army is still pretty much the army. Uh, some of the technology has changed. And, uh, there's an addition that tele telepathy has been developed and it's uh, under sort of control. And there are a lot of officers who are telepaths. Uh, I assumed uh, the telepaths 
is is generally not good for somebody if you're a telepath. Uh, so a lot of officers aren't in very long. Uh, this is all sort of background. Basically, also wanted to have some other stuff. Uh, David is a is a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft, so I introduced a Lovecraftian element. And, and he's also uh, a reader of Charles Fort, so I threw it uh, some Charles Fort without uh, actually saying so. Uh, readers of Charles Fort will pick up on it. Uh, and anyway, uh, Dave said he liked it, which was the main objective. And he, he also said something I hadn't even thought of, which was it was a very much like the stories he read in the 50s and 60s, which, uh, come to think of it, it certainly is. It's, uh, there's nothing new wave about it. It's been written in the 50s or 60s. And also, uh, there's, uh, telepathy plays a strong part. Uh, that was in a lot of stories in the 50s and 60s, but we don't see it that much anymore. Uh, one reason might be John Campbell is no longer around, and he was fascinated by psionics. And another reason might be that uh, uh, J.B. Wright himself is uh, dead. And the, and, uh, for what I understand, his uh, uh, department, or whatever it was called, at, at Duke University is pretty much uh, not functional now. No one, no one is uh, investigating telepathy. If uh, telepathy is real, we probably will find out about it uh, a long time in the future, uh, probably by accident. But uh, and, uh, anyway, I, I pretty much wrote the story in first person, the, uh, and I made the hero not a telepath. And I've got through it, invading secret aliens. Uh, invading aliens are more fun if they're secret. And, and then I threw in a uh, not not very original ending. So uh, I don't really know what else to say about the story. Uh, I, I'm a little amazed you picked it for the year's best because I uh, I didn't think it was anything outstanding. But uh, David Drake was so it it achieved it it achieved its raison d'etre if I pronounce it well, right. Yeah, there there are two Davids that liked it, I guess. So David Drake, uh-huh. at least two Davids that liked it, and me. And uh, just as you're saying, Hank, I remember when I emailed you, I said, I want to put it in there. And Tony Daniel, um, who kind of acted as the Bane editor on this, you know, um, and then Tony Weisskopf both liked it and said that I could. And you said, well, I guess I'm outvoted then. So... We put it in here. I always, I always like your story, Hank, and and I think what David Drake says is right. They give me, I love. I grew up weirdly like out of time, not reading the things that were. If I grew up reading like Frederick Brown and Henry Kettner and uh, Bradbury and stuff, even though I was born in '83, like long after most of those guys were. Well, Bradbury was still alive, I guess. But uh, and so they do. They have that feel, but they don't feel like obnoxiously a throwback, right? They don't feel like you're doing something clever with being a throwback. They feel like, you know, in the best possible way, they feel like uh, something that could have been written in the 50s or 60s. And I agree, I like the telepath stuff because, again, we just never see it either for whatever reason. Tony, do you have anything to say about... Well, that's the... I mean, the thing about Hank's stories is... um that they always seem to be straightforward in, in such a manner, but there's always a, a little modern subversion in there. Uh, it, 
Hank is so deeply read and uh and all it 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 feels um it feels rich with the past, but at the same time, um, there's always a little twist that that lets you know it's uh it's it's present day or or the future or that it's that it's a story from our time. So you're not that right. that good at hiding your modern sensibilities, Hank. <laughs> the other thing I always like is the voice. You said this is a first person. I think most of the stuff I've read of yours has been. And certainly, if you guys have ever read a Hank edited anthology, his intros are like this. They're, the voice is always uh, the narrator, and, and the narrator of his intros being him, I guess, you know. There's these fun asides, and um, I don't know, the, just the tone, it's, it's a very, I don't want to say jokey, because that sounds bad. That sounds like I'm putting it down, but a very casual like a friend telling you a story in the best possible way. Um, and that, this has got that in there, although it's also pretty scary at points as well. So, um, so well, do we, let's, let's end with a bang. So Brian Dalton, uh, thanks so much for hanging in here with us. And, um, we are now going to talk about this is the way the universe ends with a bang, your short story, um, that was in fantasy and science fiction. Uh, originally, and then now um, towards the end of year's best. Uh, Tony, I know, I mean, I obviously, again, love this story, but I know you were a big fan as well, and I knew you would be as I was reading this. Uh, originally in my copy of FNSF, I thought Tony Daniels going to dig this one. Um, so do you want to, um, I'll turn it over to you for a second, if well, you want to talk mean, to Brian, uh, yeah. and I'll jump in. I, just, I absolutely love the story, definitely, so thank you, Brian, for creating it. Um, but the, the, the idea of a mystery story at the end of the universe is so freaking cool. Um, did you go into the story thinking that that's what you wanted to do or did it just sort of come from, uh, come arise from the writing of it? I'm, I'm not really sure where the original idea for the, the, yeah, the end of the universe murder mystery came from. Um, I kind of... Who doesn't want to destroy the universe? Who doesn't want to, you know, actually, you know, if you're a science fiction writer, you want to destroy the universe. You're like, I've got that power. I'm going to just end everything. Um, so there's, you know, but yeah, I had um, a few of these concepts existed before um, as background ideas for other stories that I've had. Um, so, yeah, I was borrowing other pieces that, that already existed. But, yeah, I just wanted to, to see what happens if, you know, there's only a few beings left at the end of the universe and they don't necessarily all get on with each other. The story came from a few sort of other ideas that I had. Um, some of the concepts existed in, you know, a science fiction universe and science fiction stories that I've drafted out. And, um, and I was just putting stuff together to see what I could do when I could, you know, at the end of the universe. What do you do when the universe is dying and there's only a few uh, beings left, and they have very different ideas about how to deal with the death of the universe and the inevitable death of everything. And these are super beings. They're um, they're like uh, what happened if the singularity popped up all over different places in the universe, something like that, right? They're all completely different. Um, they are mostly completely incomprehensible, so I don't go into any kind of physical descriptions or anything of the, the vast majority of them. Um, there's a lot of, there's some made up words, there's some uh, made up concepts. There's a lot of um, 
borrowed from our current ideas on um, the abstruse corners of physics, but I can't pretend to understand all of the bits and pieces that get pulled in there. The, it had a real... Um... I don't know if it's an influence that we're throwing out stories, this, uh, but it it felt like Brian Aldiss um, had, was an influence on you, particularly uh, that great story of his, whose name is escaping me, the worm, uh, I can't, Hank will know it, <laughs> probably. But, the worm from flies. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> there, are, there are little bits of influences from all over the place. Um, Titles and lists, there are odd quotes and references here and there to all manner of stuff. Um, the pro probably the most uh, stuff was some of Steve Baxter's work out of um, maybe vacuum diagrams, which I think is a series of short things that all fall into the same timeline and universe um, as some of his novels as well. Um, and I, I was interested in the feel of that. Uh, and it's possibly James Blish, um, which somebody commented on, I know, when it was published in, in science fiction. Um, the Cities in Flight, at the very end, the final um, scene from Cities in Flight, which I read many, many, many years ago. And that is probably an influence there as well, just in terms of what happens when the universe ends. How does it end and what happens when that's going on? <laughs> Can you kind of set up what the, the situation in the story about a couple of these super beings because I find found they're, they're they're sort of like thematic right to some extent yes um, there are uh, philosophies taken to particular extremes uh, in some cases and they are big more about their, their ideas than any sort of physical form or structure their their concepts I mean if there's one called um, phenomenon which only ever uh, deal with introducing new concepts so anything it tries to communicate it's trying to say it has never been communicated to the entire history of the universe uh, which means it actually has to instruct the people it's talking to how to translate these concepts because it's doing such a new thing so it's almost completely incomprehensible to everyone um, you know when it's talking to you it almost has to provide a dictionary with the um, statement that it's making so that you can understand what it's trying to say. Yeah, it's just a, a super cool conception. Uh, anything else, David? Well, I was just, I mean, I just like to compliment these stories because it's kind of like complimenting myself for picking them, right? Uh, <laughs> but I, the thing, I, I kind of hate gimmickiness. Right, I, I, you know, I'd rather people just tell a straightforward story. And so, like when you see like what you're talking about, Ellis telling you to translate 
fonts and all this. You know, I'm like worried, like, oh, this is going to be. And then, man, not at all. Like, this is such a wonderful uh, story that instead, it never felt like a gimmick. It never felt overpowering. Um, you know, again, maybe there were parts that were challenging, but it felt like you knew that it was going to be worth it if you, uh, you know, got through it. And they, and they weren't really challenging. I mean, you, the thing to me is you're yeah, dealing with 92 sentient beings that are all different at the end of time. And yet, I never got lost in the story. I never lost the thread. I always knew who was who. I, you know, even when I didn't, obviously I can't, comp- you can't comprehend these beings, but, um, you can't, let me put it this way. You couldn't comprehend the beings, but you could comprehend the story easily. And that was, to me, that's the neatest trick of this, is this packing all this world building and these far out concepts. And yet the story is, in many ways, you have a very straightforward mystery story. And, um, Again, that's not a question. That's just a comment on it. But yeah, yeah, that that there you go. Boom. <laughs> it, it, incidentally, the James Bush novel about the end of the universe that he mentioned is is uh, the triumph of time. Uh, I understand it's published in England as a clash of symbols. Uh, symbols being the musical instruments, not not the things that English majors go on about. Uh-huh. That was the Cities in Flight uh, Quattro, right? Yeah, that was yeah, that was the fourth volume of Cities in Flight. Uh, I think the sequence is They Shall Have Stars, which originally had a different title. Then Earthbank Come Home. No, sorry. Then uh, ah, Earthbank Come Home is the third one. I, I find I can't remember the second one, which was somewhat the weakest one since it was written as a juvenile, even if it was serialized at analog. Uh, uh, this is all irrelevant, so I will shut up. <laughs> Everyone should read the uh, the Spin Dizzy books. Well, what, uh, David, do you want to sum up and say goodbye? Uh, or do we have anything else we need to add here? Um, Why don't we do this? Why don't we cut these authors loose so they can go write stories for Years Best 2016? And maybe me and you can talk about some of the other stories in there just briefly, and then we will uh, we'll wrap it up. Does that sound good? Yeah. Well, let's um, just want to thank everyone greatly um, for being with us and uh, and providing some insight into these wonderful stories that you've written. Thanks, thank you. Great Thanks being a lot. Here. Yep. Yeah. Thank, yeah. You. Yep. thank you. Yeah. Thanks, care, everybody. Guys. Great talking with you. Yeah. All right. Butch, butchus, butchus Gridola, or whatever the word is. <laughs> well, thanks, Tony, and it's a lot of fun. And I, I also want to say thanks to um, we had about half the contributors on uh, just due to scheduling, and then of course, I mean this is this is a long interview uh, as you can see, so we couldn't have everybody on. So I, I do want to just briefly mention uh, David Drake, who's got a great story uh, called "Save What You Can," which is the first Hammer Slammer story in like over a decade. Um, when it was originally published, it was. Now it's been reprinted here. Uh, we've got one of my favorite writers, Joe Lansdale. He's got a kind of a Burroughs send-up called Wizard of the Trees. Uh, Sarah Pinsker wrote a, a really touching, um, short uh, military science fiction, um, you know, after the war is over, called Remembery Day. Uh, we've got Brad Ferguson as back again. He was in the first volume. He's got a story called Gyre, which is set in this larger Sargasso universe, um, Sargasso Containment Universe, uh, which you can read about online. Eric Leaf 
Davin, who was also in the first one, he's back again with a story called Twilight on Olympus. And finally, we got David Brin, uh, who wrote a story called Tumble Downs of Cleopatra Abyss, which has uh, got a lot of good attention, including closing out uh, year's best military and adventure science fiction 2015. So, uh, anyways, those are all worthy stories. I would love to have those on as well, but we just didn't have time. So, thank you to them. Thank you to the people who are on, and thank you, Tony. And let's uh, one more time mention the, uh, the the place you can vote. Yes, go vote. Vote early and often. Actually, I think you can just vote once. But yeah, it's it's proctored. And it's, uh, it is absolutely, uh, we've got it set up um, to where it can't be fiddled with. Um, and it's uh, www.bain.com slash year's best award 2015. And uh, so go buy the anthology, read it. Uh, make the agonizing decision of which one is your favorite and vote for it, and we will hand up the award at DragonCon. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Coursera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Chapter 2 Bantry Estate, Cinnabar the run back to Bantry Village was long and tedious at the best speed the skiff could manage, but Daniel found that he didn't care. He sat, more comatose than relaxed, in the bow while Hogg held the tiller. Not that much guidance was required. That was too bloody close, Hogg said harshly. He didn't need to detail what he was thinking of. Even this close to shore on a calm day, the skiff was unsteady when they crossed the inlet through the barrier islands. Bantry's seawall protected the houses, and the commercial fishing fleet needed the inlet to shuttle between the sea and Bantry's processing plant. I wasn't afraid at the time, Daniel said, opening his eyes. Now every time I think about that eel's fangs, they get another inch longer. They were bloody long enough in all truth, Hogg said. I don't guess you could see them, but I bloody could. I didn't get a good look till you put a spike through his brain, Daniel agreed. That was a nice thrust. Nice as I ever made, Hogg said, but he sounded desperate and angry rather than deservedly triumphant. I wasn't bloody sure I could do it. I was sure, Daniel said, which was the truth, but he'd have said it anyway. Hogg had been afraid because he had nothing to do but wait while death wriggled toward the young master. Daniel had been busy trying to splash backward with one hand and to guess where the skiff was and where the eel was, while all the time planning how to get himself into the boat, while holding the lure in the water with his left hand till the last instant. 
He hadn't had time to worry about dying, though if asked, he would have said it was probable. Wolf eels weren't exactly poisonous, but their fangs were so septic with decaying flesh that the chance of surviving a bite was negligible. Daniel looked up at the seawall as they puttered toward the little harbor, a niche behind a breakwater where a small craft could be dragged out of the water. He had thought that Miranda might be waiting up there for him, but the only greeting was a chorus of, Hey, Squire! from Hebney, Colfax, and Riddle, who spent most of their time on the seawall drinking ale. Two of them were crippled, and all three were old. They weren't so much idlers as past the ability to work. Miranda hadn't known when he would be back, after all, and she couldn't have expected an ordinary afternoon's fishing to lead to, well, what it had. Og nosed them into the little harbor. Daniel, Miranda cried, springing up from a concrete bench cast into the breakwater. She had been on the dock, not up on the seawall. Oh, darling, I'm so glad to see you. Got it, said Hogg, grabbing a bit to steady the skiff. He waited to tie up until Daniel had stepped out. Daniel hugged his fiancée. He was a little embarrassed to have thought that Miranda hadn't come to greet him, and more than a little worried because her greeting was so enthusiastic. Did she know? Daniel, Miranda said, stepping back slightly. I invited Tom Sand to dinner tonight. If I did wrong, I apologize, but it sounded important, and I didn't know when you would be getting back. Of course it's all right, Daniel said heartily as he wondered what was going on. I'd better get cleaned up. I went swimming to free the lure the last time. Which was enough to say about the fishing trip, he decided. Miranda knew his work was dangerous, but there was no need to tell her how dangerous bad luck could make his leisure. He gestured her ahead of him to the cast staircase. The steps were slippery, so that put him in a position to catch her if she fell. A vanishingly improbable event, but a reflexive matter of courtesy. That's, uh, the builder, you mean, he added. Ah, and he's coming for me, not Adele. The only Tom Sand Daniel knew was the major contractor who, as a favor, though Daniel wasn't sure who the favor had been to exactly, had built the community building which Daniel had given to Bantry. Daniel had gotten on well with Sand the few times they'd met, but they were barely social acquaintances. Sand was also the husband of Bernice Sand. Daniel knew as little as possible about Adele's intelligence work, but he couldn't help making that connection when heard the name. Yes, Miranda said, pausing for Daniel at the top of the seawall. I told him you were out fishing, so I don't think he could have thought I meant Lady Mundy. Another woman would have told me that I was treating her as though she were a moron, Daniel said. You are far too sweet to say that, even if it's true, for which I apologize. He grinned and kissed her. A pair of housewives chatting on one's doorway giggled, and a man, one of the trio on the seawall, cackled, Give her another one, squire! She's too pretty to stop there! Miranda was tall and fair, attractive by any standard. She wasn't beautiful at a glance, but even on first meeting, she had projected an aliveness that set her apart from the conventionally lovely girls whom Daniel had dated to that moment. Daniel waved to the idlers but avoided eye contact. He was the squire whenever he visited Bantry, in fact, though not by law. He had the respect of everyone on the estate and their due deference also. But a free citizen's deference didn't mean slavish kowtowing. Though Daniel was first among equals, the folk he'd grown up with were his equals as men and women. It was a little awkward, 
Miranda said in a low voice as they walked toward the manor house. Cloris, the housekeeper, Widow Green, took the call and told me that Master Sand was calling for the squire. I picked up the phone and said that you were fishing, but that I'd have you call back as soon as you got in. And I called him Tom because, of course, we've been introduced. Right, said Daniel, nodding. He hadn't seen the problem yet, but he knew there had to be one for Miranda to be agitated. He hadn't planned to tell anyone but you that it was him calling, Miranda said. Cloris recognized his voice, and I didn't realize that he hadn't identified himself. He was surprised when I called him Tom. Daniel laughed. Cloris has an ear for voices, he said. I doubt she's heard Tom Sand speak more than half a dozen times in all her life, and that just a few words each. I certainly wasn't expecting to hear from him. He looked sharply at Miranda as they reached the veranda. Did he say what it was about? He asked to come to dinner, Miranda said, entering as Daniel held the door for her. He said his wife wouldn't be along. I told him that he was welcome and that if he liked, I'd leave Bantry. She paused in the front room. The rambling old building was being spruced up now that Daniel was spending time at Bantry again. But the air held a cutting hint of the bleach, which was being used on the mold. He said he wouldn't think of putting me out, but that yes, he'd appreciate privacy with you during dinner, she continued, holding Daniel's eyes. I know it wasn't my place to invite him, but he sounded so worried, and I didn't know how to get to you. Daniel took her hands. Miranda was as concerned as he'd ever seen her, afraid that she had interfered in his business. Throughout their relationship, she pointedly had tried at all costs to avoid that. Thank you, dear, he said. You did right. You had to make a decision, and you chose the better of two options. Either was acceptable, and anyway, I wouldn't be upset if you'd guessed wrong. So it's three for dinner, Mirandi, Mistress Green said, calling across the front room. Daniel and Miranda were still in the entrance hall with old paddles, fishing poles, and yard tools, some of them broken. Two, Cloris, Miranda said, looking over her shoulder with a bright smile. I'm going to check with Gwen Higginson wife of the head of the fish processing plant, to see if they've got room at table for me while the men talk business here. Mistress Green snorted. If she didn't, she'd put her husband out in the shed to make room, she said correctly enough. Cloris, Daniel said, Hog and I caught some sprats. Tom Sand and I will have those, but I've got to shower. That car of his will make it from Zenos in two hours if he pushes it. I've laid clean clothes on the bed. Miranda said. She caught concern in the slight tenseness at the corners of Daniel's mouth. No, nothing fancy, she protested. Just like what you're wearing, RCN utilities, only clean. And a newish pair, one that you haven't split up the seat. Laughing as though he hadn't momentarily feared that he would find his dress whites waiting for him in the bedroom, Daniel walked through the front room on his way to the showers at the back. Miranda stayed beside him. I tried to think what Adele would do. She grinned, but the expression had a wry tinge. That didn't help much, she said, because I realized Adele wouldn't be out of contact. Daniel laughed in real humor as he bent to take off his soft boots. A pair of shower shoes waited just inside the door of the large tile room. He was very lucky to have met Miranda Dorst. Sorry, though, he was that the occasion of meeting had been the death of her brother under Daniel's command. Adele isn't a magician, love, he said as he stripped off the utilities he'd worn fishing.
The fabric dried quickly, but the many pockets were damp and probably held weed and mud. I grant that she seems to be one sometimes. Daniel turned on one of the three shower heads. Instead of a drain, the runoff slanted down the floor and through the gap under the outer wall. One good thing about this Tom Sand business was that Daniel was no longer thinking about the wolf eel and what hadn't quite happened. He grinned. Instead, I can worry about what Mistress Sand's husband needs to tell me in secret and what that means for me and Adele. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And rolling thunderclouds filled with a variety of fireworks and seasoned with an aerosol of 15 pepper sauces and scattered boxes of light anywhere matches that contain their own oxygen supply and even work in space. And the thanks and praise of a grateful readership to David F. Sharirod, Brendan Dubois, Andrea M. Polly, Claudine Griggs, Seth Dickinson, Brian Dalton, and Hank Davis, editor and authors of The Year's Best Military and Adventure SF 2015. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Music